Hey, Nathan, can your god make a burrito so hot he can't eat it? Um, yes. So he can't eat it? No. So he can't make it? Oh no, my faith! I'm Austin. I'm Nathan. And welcome Welcome to to the the world world of religion. religion. Welcome back to another episode of the world of religions. Sorry, we're coming out a few days late here. I uh, was suffering from a cold not too long ago. And And his girlfriend was here. Yes, there were various reasons why I could not set aside the time to talk. It's not hopeless. You can be a religion nerd and still have a girlfriend. It's been known to happen. Don't be an incel. All right, that's already off topic. (laughs) Wow, new record. So, we're going to talk about God. Last week, we focused on Buddhism, mainly. And this week, we're going to be talking about sort of a philosophical God concept and but a God concept that works a lot better usually with a Christian, Muslim, or Jewish understanding. And that is the idea of the Omni-God, which is a God that is all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, and all-loving or all-good, omnibenevolent. Omni, 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 therefore omni-God. And that's what most Christians, Muslims, Jews... And some others would think of God. I would assume so. If they don't, we get into heresies, which could be another episode. Well, yeah, but even the even the Christian heresies would probably still go along with an omni-god. Yeah. Although, yeah. you could probably go into some forms of Gnosticism, which debate which god is the omni-god. The highest level of the pleroma. Exactly. There we go. Wow, we're off topic again. Nah, this is it's religion this time. It's actually on topic. It is. So, okay, <laughs> but to bring it back to the beginning, what was the purpose of that whole burrito opener? It's a problem, a paradox, one might say, where you have God's omnipotence, which means all-powerfulness, ability to do everything. And there are certain there seem to be some things that if you can do them, you can't do other things. And logically, necessarily. So, if you can create a burrito so hot that you are unable to eat it, that just logically entails that you can't eat the burrito. And if you can eat the burrito, it logically entails that you can't make one that way. So, either way, you have a thing God can't do. And that seems to be a problem if we're defining God as omnipotent. Right. In a perhaps stripped down sense, you're saying he can do everything. But where does this idea come from? And it all started with... A boy named Anselm. A boy named Anselm. In Canterbury. In Canterbury. Yeah, can- Canterbury? Canterbury? Canterbury. Sorry, I'm Californian. <laughs> ha! Ha! Anyways, Anselm was the Bishop of Canterbury from the 1090s till the 1100s, so 900 years ago. And uh, he wrote the famous ontological argument which, if you know about it, you either love it like it's the greatest thing in the world or despise it like it's the worst thing in the world. And I'm here to tell you, it's neither. It's Ooh. just kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're, we're not being particularly bold this day on Welcome to the World of Religions. All right, so I'm assuming you're somewhat familiar with the ontological argument. Yeah, I've heard of it. In, I've heard of it in joking formats. I've heard of it in serious formats. Basically, my understanding of it is... That if there is, if you can posit 
a being greater than which there could be no being. That than which no greater can be thought. Yeah, there we go. Is the exact terminology. So a being than which nothing greater can be thought. And since it seems that being is greater than non-being, it seems to follow that this being therefore exists. Right. Yeah. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a thing to get your head around, especially if you're coming from a persuasion that's either non-theological or or sorry, non-theistic or just not monotheistic. But we are conceiving of a being that is greater than anything conceivable. And there's a lot of things that go along with that. It's probably going to be loving rather than hating. It's probably going to be all-powerful instead of powerless. It's also probably going to be existing rather than non-existing. So you have this little logical hop that says, well, if it's conceivable, it must exist. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the greatest possible being, and then it's inconceivable. But it seems to... It seems to be that it is a greatest possible being is conceivable. And if it's conceivable, it exists. If it doesn't exist, it's not the greatest possible being and therefore not conceivable. Yeah. And so this argument, once you get your head around it, like you said, is very interesting because in a strange intuitive sort of way, it seems oddly compelling. And yet it also lends itself to vicious parody and mockery. And the vicious parody goes way way back which what are you thinking of what vicious parody well i'm thinking of the the island example oh so all the way back yeah which was the original i've learned recently from you yeah so right after anselm wrote the ontological argument um his monk friend gonalo responded with uh on behalf a book called on behalf of the fool which is great because <laughs> anselm wrote his book kind of like a story where it tells of this fool an atheist, which we all know. Atheists are fools, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's in the Bible. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he, he, this, this man, the fool, doesn't think there's a God. And he's like, you fool, you're a fool. Um, <laughs> there is a God. And here's my argument. Gives the ontological argument. That's his whole book. And Gonald writes on behalf of the fool. And it's kind of like, well, there's, what if, what about a, a maximally great island? This island will have all sorts of great fruit trees, great climate, easily accessible by boat, but still, you know, far out enough that you're not in touch with too much of society. Not enough people know about it. Not a ton of people know about it. You'd want to go there on vacation. Yeah, like a perfect vacation spot. The ideal island or the ideal vacation spot. And of course, to conceive of the greatest possible vacation slot, but it, it would have to exist. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the greatest possible because... Even the Jersey Shore is better than a non-existent vacation spot. Or is it? <laughs> Actually, you're from California. You wouldn't get that joke, would you? No, but I can, I'm can. i sensing some of your old East Coast uh, yeah. upbringing coming out. What's the, like, worst, the worst, like, California beach? Oh, uh, I don't know. Are there There's, any bad California the, beaches? You know, I've heard... From what I've heard, it may have gotten a bit better, but L.A. beaches can be pretty trashy sometimes. Okay, so even the L.A. beach is better than a non-existent beach. Yeah. Probably. One would assume. Either way, to be the greatest possible island, this island has to exist. So it either exists, or I can't conceive of it. Which seems more likely that it... Does it seem likely that the greatest possible island is conceivable? Yes, so it must exist. Probably not. Yeah, all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, as soon as we move away from 
the word God to the word island and the concepts associated with that, the argument seems a lot less plausible. Right. And it, it kind of comes down to whether you think there needs, A, there needs to be a greatest possible of something, if that's an actual thing. And B, if conceivability is grounds for possibility. Yeah. So like if I conceive of, oh shoot, what was it from last episode? The thing that inspired the Buddhist enlightenment. It was like a six-legged chromatic sheep or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You're walking down the street, see a six-legged sheep in prismatic colors, something like yeah. that. So if that's conceivable, does that mean it's possible that such a sheep exists? And when you say possible, you're using this in a in a yeah, like is it sense. yeah, could yeah. it could could it could it be? Could there be a freakish evolutionary chain that gets us that sheep? Maybe. It just seems hard to prove. Mm. And yet, despite the fact that this argument was posited by Anselm nearly a thousand years ago and responded to with this objection by his Gonalo. monk friend, Bogonalo, yeah. we're still hearing about it centuries later. It's and, been reworked. I think yeah. Leibniz reworked it, or maybe it was Spinoza. Uh, Leibniz. That was Leibniz? It. Okay. And he reworked it in Possible Worlds, which is very advanced metaphysical concept that you it doesn't it doesn't it's not terribly necessary but basically he framed it in terms of possibility and necessity like what we were talking about earlier is it possible that the six-legged sheep exists like it doesn't seem to violate any laws of physics or logic but um basically saying if god exists in one possible world then he exists in every possible world because if it's at least possible that such a maximally great being exists one of those maximal greatnesses would be existing necessarily existing by definition so if it's at least possible that a being exists with the property of existing necessarily then that being exists necessarily again it still falls prey to the island mm. response so i would imagine that also a response to that would be the, the argument the counter argument may center around the premise that it would be possible for such a being to exist in the first place. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it's very difficult to prove the impossibility of something. Right. It's like proving the non-existence of something. You kind of have to, you know, go through everything that exists and say, is this that thing? No. Okay. Move on to the next object mm. in the universe, which is big. That'd take a while. <laughs> it would take a while. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, we're going into... A very different direction. Anyways, what I think the ontological argument is useful for is as an argument for monotheism, at least. Okay. We have a god. Let's all accept... I mean, most of us who would call ourselves religious would accept a god. Obviously, as we talked about, Buddhists don't. And there are some other non-theistic religions, but a lot of religions would posit a god being. And so, would this god being be the greatest possible being? Well, it's certainly higher than us. And if there was something higher than that God, then wouldn't that be God? And if there's something higher than that God, wouldn't that be God? And eventually you go up this chain until you eventually have this greatest possible being that is God. So that seems a lot more, like, palpable. That yeah. if God exists, he must be this greatest possible being. And this has started a form of analytic theology called, like, uh, greatest being theology, or... Mm maximal being theology or philosophy and that's where we get this idea of omnipotence and that's why the burrito problem we finally come back is so pernicious so 
we've gotten to this point of maximal being, uh, but we still run into this potential objection, which is that it seems logically impossible to be omnipotent. Yeah, basically. Omnipotence, strong omnipotence, doesn't seem to work. Or what I would call logically maximal omnipotence, which is just a bunch of fancy words for saying the ability to do everything and any to the ability to do everything, period. You run into paradoxes. Yeah, and so I would imagine, knowing what philosophers are like, that they have not taken this lying down and tried to solve the problem or posit alternative ways of thinking. Well, no one really wants to posit logically maximal omnipotence and still be a philosopher. Mm. But um, usually, you just go down to what's called compossibility. Okay, and or, what's that? Which is being able to do everything logically possible. So, God can't do something logically impossible, like create a square circle. Or God can't do something impossible, like cause the first tsunami to ever occur today. Uh, assuming the past is unchangeable, which is another discussion <laughs> that's probably not even on topic for this podcast. So basically, we're saying, take the concept of omnipotence, but it is now defined as God can do everything logically possible. Right. And so that would solve the burrito problem because the burrito problem is itself a paradox, not logically solvable. So God can't do it. And that's okay. Like, so now you, as the more, the more, um, theologically minded of the two of us or straight theologically minded of the two of us, how does that sit? How does a, a God, how to, especially on the, well, I mean, eventually we're gonna have to play our cards. We're both Christians not exactly your stereotypical Christians by any stretch of the imagination. Um, maybe one day we'll do into our own beliefs, but I'm like kind of Eastern Orthodox, but not really. And Nathan, <laughs> I'm not going to define you, uh, define yourself. You know, I'm Presbyterian on paper, but not doctrinally. So yeah, you know, it, yeah. So yeah. How as a Christian would, you know, how okay are you with limited omnipotence? Uh, it seems fine to me, and here's why. So, when we get into the concept of, even just the concept of God, we're dealing with something so far beyond our own cognition that I think, which is the attribute of transcendence, that we are inevitably going to run into these apparent contradictions. Such as, okay, I can say God can do everything, which seems like a fine belief, but then when I think about it, as the burrito problem demonstrates... I run into an apparent impossibility. And then we're in this uncomfortable position of saying perhaps, well, are there things impossible for God? But that's not such an untenable position, even among most Christians. For example, we would, I assume all Christians would agree. Well, unfortunately, I know enough about the diversity of Christianity or people who, <laughs> yeah, at least, say. Yeah, or at least people who claim the label of Christianity that this is not a universal statement. But Throughout the history of Christian belief, the majority position has always been God is incapable of sin, for instance. Is it God is incapable of sin or God just wouldn't sin? I would imagine that the majority response would be that he cannot okay. because it's it would be against his own nature. Mm -hmm. So it's not even in the realm of possibility. So Christianity or like just solves the paradox by just saying, yeah, it's okay, God isn't fully omnipotent. Or I suppose 
that's one way of framing it. Perhaps a way of rewording it that may seem less edgy would be to say that what omnipotence is works out in a logical fashion. Okay, so that's a very philosophical answer. That's doesn't happen all the time that, you know, the philosophers and the theolog- theologians get along that well. This is a rare moment. Yeah, because like, yeah, the philosophy in the field of philosophy, yeah, it's just conversation about God just doesn't really go to maximal omnipotence. It's always mm. just how omnipotent can you be? And without avoiding with while avoiding logical contradictions. Yeah. And it may even be that within this episode, we'll run into cases where theology and philosophy don't play well together. Yeah. But this is a show about what's weird in religion. And you know what is weird? God can do everything, but not really. And that's a paradox. Yep. Cool. So what are some other paradoxes? Well, along the same lines of can God do everything is the weird problem of incarnation. And incarnation is pretty common amongst religions. I mean, it's in Christianity, obviously. It's foundational in Christianity. It's in Hinduism. The incarnation of Vishnu as Krishna. You're thinking sorry. The incarnation Vish- of Krishna. Vishnu as Krishna. Yeah, the incarnation yes. of Krishna in various forms, in at least the uh, the the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedic texts. Where uh, else? Where like? So, are there any other examples you can think of? There are more examples that could be raised. I am going to flag this though as saying, I don't think I would use the label incarnation for all of those. Okay. So Christianity does explicitly hold to an incarnation and by incarnation, if we're just going to dig down into the root, you could say like infleshment, like God being put into a fleshly body in meeting and meeting is a very, <laughs> sounds funny, but that is like, you, you a can very hear it. wooden translation, yeah, but it, right in the word incarnation incarnate in a sense. Uh, Whereas if you take something like Hinduism and the descent of uh, Krishna, uh, you you have words like that. You have words like descent or you have the term avatar appear. Mm -hmm. But it's perhaps questionable exactly how that works out metaphysically. And even different Hindu philosophers came to different conclusions as to how it works out. Well, a lot of it is through pantheism, right? Like right. through the pervasiveness of of Brahman in everything. Right. And so if matter. and so if you have in Hindu thought the idea that everything is God, then incarnation becomes slightly less radical because it's one you might say one instance of God that is a lowercase G instance manifesting as what appears to be a human instance, and yet it is all God in substance. Yeah. Well, I think that works well with, I think, I think we can still call that incarnation. They just, they just don't have the problem of enfleshment like a Christian would, because they already believe that God is everywhere. That in a pantheistic system, God's already pervading all matter and all things and all objects. So incarnation isn't like a weird thing. It's just like an activation of the, the God within almost like, or God deciding to act more directly through this substance. Perhaps. I think 
this is probably something we could hash out in a longer form discussion. I think maybe the difference is just where we're laying our emphases. Sure. And even in okay. perhaps the nuances of how we're understanding a pantheistic system to work. Okay. But at least it doesn't come into any paradoxes necessarily. Right. It it, it certainly is a lot easier to reckon with than uh, the position of Christian theology, right. which does run into these logical paradoxes. So yeah. Moving on to the, the Christian paradox, which, you know, as we said at the beginning, this is going to be a very christianity centered video and each or video podcast and each one will probably focus on a different religion or topic that raises several but yeah jesus is the incarnation of god the orthodox position is he is fully human and fully god and we won't even get into the the logical problem there but assuming that works how does it work on omnipotence could jesus do everything god could do or no and if so, what? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe another way of putting this is, so let's say that it is logically possible indeed for God to make a boulder, but a boulder he could still lift. Right. However, once God incarnates himself as a human, he can no longer grab Mount Everest and chuck it into space. Okay. Which he can with a mustard seed of faith. <laughs> there we go okay problem is solved moving on no so um this is one of the things that we have to reckon with when we consider that christ had or has currently two natures both the human nature and the divine nature and the classic definition of this was put forth at the council of chalcedon in 451 i believe yeah. 451 and um it's a piece of uh, negative theology, which essentially sets the boundaries around um, the problem. So uh, these two natures are in hypostatic union. Uh, You're going to have to probably define right. that term. So a hypostasis is, uh, well, we say that Christ has two hypostases, so two natures, mm -hmm. one human, one divine. And according to the Chalcedonian definition, these are without change, without confusion, without division, Without separation. And without separation is the fourth one. So they're kind of merged perfectly. They are... Even saying merged perfectly, yeah. you, you've just violated the definition there. is there. human and there is divine perfectly coexisting. In one in person. In some way, in one person. And the church fathers call this hypostatic union, essentially defining hypostatic union as this is the way that the person of Christ works. We're not sure how. All we know is that we can say there's no division, change, separation, confusion. So how does that, if it's if Jesus is fully God, how does he not have God power? And if he doesn't, is that limiting on God? So one way that I've heard this uh, problem addressed is with something called the qua move, which Austin, you can tell us all about the, the word qua. Qua, qua. Yeah. philosopher's favorite term. Which means kind of like in that it is something. Yeah, or so with respect to yeah, probably be another way of yeah, phrasing it. Yeah, another way of phrasing it. So uh, the way the qua move would work is say Jesus is walking down the street and there's a massive boulder on the side of the road. Jesus, being a human, cannot lift it. Jesus qua human. Exactly. So Jesus qua human cannot lift it. However, we could say at the same time, Jesus qua God. Jesus would, given that he is God. Yes. So Jesus as divine would have the power to compel that boulder to move in some sort of miraculous manner. 
And this, this is kind of like the ontological argument. This is the sort of thing that if you're inclined to agree with it, makes fantastic sense. <laughs> but if you're skeptical, it seems like an elaborate dodge right. uh, around the problem, which is how can this be one person? Mm-hmm. Well, that's part of the, the deal with understanding religions in general. You kind of have to allow yourself to work on their terms. Right. It's one thing to disagree with the premise of Christianity, but it's another thing to say it's internally inconsistent. And I think that's a stretch for most religions to yeah. say that they're internally inconsistent. Yeah, there's usually been centuries, if not millennia, of thought put in by some of the greatest minds within those religions to work it out. Right. So that that's a way of solving it, is yeah. that... Would that just be willingness then? That Jesus willingly acts human or does human instead uh, of yes doing God? Yes. So on this idea, on this way of being, so on the cross, according to uh, the passion narratives in the Gospels, people mocked Christ and uh, told him to bring himself down if he truly had that power. And so... In this way of thinking, the response to that would be, well, he could have, but he chose not to exercise that power. There you go. So it's a willingness, which I think actually works, makes a stronger omnipotence. Because if you have a being that's very, very powerful, like compossible or logically omnipotent, such that he can do everything logically possible, and this being can make himself weaker that's a display of power even though he's made himself weaker for a time yeah and the this... inability to make oneself weaker is still an inability right so that seems like an expanding of god's om- omnipotence to allow himself to become weaker yeah and this leads into uh there's a term that gets thrown around once in a while which is kenosis Kino- yeah which comes from philippians uh and it's from the greek verb kanao which uh it's essentially too empty. And in Philippians, uh, Paul says that Christ emptied himself in the incarnation. And this has provoked a lot of debate and discussion about precisely what it means. But one way of thinking about it is that somehow Christ set aside his own access to the divine attributes, uh, willingly, uh, which in an odd twist means that he was so powerful. He could deny he could, himself his own power. Right. He was so powerful he could deny himself his own power and willingly take it up again. Well, that's a cool way to do it. Now, that's a paradox, but it's an explained paradox. It's one that makes sense on its system. Right. Which is cool. That's and, a way religions can really work. Yeah. And one other thing I'll flag with this is that there, the term kenosis has also been used in somewhat questionable ways. Uh, from an orthodox perspective. So in extreme view, this says that Jesus actually put aside his divine nature rather than putting aside his divine power. Yeah. You might say his access to the power. So that's a bigger paradox though. Yeah. And that I would say falls beyond the pale of orthodoxy since he would not be fully divine in that sense. But you know what things things that fall beyond the pale of orthodoxy is what we're all about. Oh, that's why absolutely. we that's why we that's why we're we say welcome to the world of religion. <laughs> yeah. Certainly. That's 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 the way it goes.
And for our final thing, we can talk about, and as we run out of time, it's perfect, to talk <laughs> about God in time. Now, the standard Christian perception, don't get me wrong, I mean, uh, yeah, tell me if I'm wrong, is that God is atemporal, or not bound or affected by time. Right, and obviously, outside of the incarnation. Yeah, you right. You God, the divine nature, perhaps another way of putting it, is not restricted by time. Right. And this is its own kind of philosophical conundrum. Does that mean God existed before time? And then we run into this fascinating <laughs> linguistic issue, which is we have just posited before there is such a concept as before. Right. And I think a lot of, a lot of theists would want to say, yes, God exists pre-creation. But what does that really mean? Well, one way to go around it, well, you have, you have time, and time is an aspect of creation. So if, if the world is the, it is an aspect of the material world, so if the world materially exists, then you can have time, because things are changing and time is progressing and all of that stuff. If you don't have any matter whatsoever, you can't really have time, because there's no, there's no change, there's no nothing. Time is affected by matter physics would show that time is a is it is a property of matter right but without in, matter you don't have time yeah as physicists understand it space and time are a fabric woven together right so god it makes perfect sense to say god can exist without time let's say but does god exist before time well does i don't think any i don't think it's it's even you're even able to say anything exists before time because here's what you have is you have you have you have created world, the material world, and if God exists before it, then you have this sort of hyper time, like a time that measures immaterial change. Okay. And that's that's a guessing way you could say God creates the world at a moment in hyper time. Let's say ten hyperseconds after existing. And to clarify, you've just said 10 hyperseconds after the beginning. The beginning of, of hypertime. Hypertime. And there you go. Does God predate hypertime? Yes or no? Well, if yes, then I guess he creates hypertime at 10 seconds of hyper hypertime. And if he predates hyper hypertime, yeah, you get an infinite regression, as you're seeing, of 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 super times, hyper times. And we don't like infinite regressions. Nobody likes infinite regressions. Some people might like infinite regressions, but we don't like them. As a very weak dodge of the cosmological argument. Right. <laughs> so, hypertime doesn't really work or seem to make sense or even... So, to say God predates the universe is, is, is just, it just doesn't make sense. It's wrong. So, God exists, and then he creates the universe simultaneously. Perhaps with a logical procession, like God... God causes the universe, but he's not really there before it. Because there is no before. Right, there is no before. There's nothing by which to measure a before. And even if God created angels or whatever you want to call it before he created the physical universe, well, then you're just positing a hypertime, a spiritual hypertime. And maybe that's one hypertime that can make sense. But then God still, does he exist before the angels? Well... Before, no. it become, before it is right. repeatedly what's cropping up. Yeah, here. there's going to be something. The first created thing, whatever that is, is going to be just as old as God. 
because time starts to expound your reasoning because such a being would be as old as God because time starts at that moment of creation. Right. So can we keep saying that God is fully outside time? Perhaps he doesn't age. He doesn't change with time. But he can affect time. He can work in time. Unless you're a, a deist and believe God doesn't function with the created universe anymore. Would one possible response to that be to say, so say we were to go with this argument of God is as old as the first created being. Right. What if someone, and perhaps this is more deistic, but what if someone were to just say, God is such that you can't even measure him by time. He's that extracted from it. Well, at that point, you run into this interesting question, another paradoxical question, does God know what time it is? Oh, interesting. So if God knows what time it is, then he's got some sort of relationship with time. He understands the present as we do. But if he's just an eternal being existing outside of time, what time is it? Is it a question that makes sense to God? Mm. What time is it for humans, maybe? But God himself, there's no, there's no, there's no time in which there's no present for God. There's just always an eternal moment. And this is a puzzling problem in religious philosophy Mm. where you either say God exists with some relationship to time or he's so detached from time that it doesn't really make sense to say he works with it. If he doesn't work with time, how does he work with the universe? Right, and the very notion of a theistic God is a God who does interact with the universe. Right. And just a quick thing to wrap up, Aquinas does try and dodge this problem. And he says there's a moment, pre, quote-unquote, I'm making air quotes, you can't see them, but I am, pre-creation, logically prior to creation, where God decides it all. God knows the entire future, and he says, in this moment, he decides, at this point in human time, I will act and do this thing, create this object. I will talk to this person. I will do this thing. I will forgive this sin. At this point, when this person prays to me, I will answer, et cetera, et cetera. He plans all of that in a, in a non-temporal moment, logically prior to creation. Then creation goes. And so God can still exist outside of it, but still have all these like preset interactions that just kind of occur at, at the right time. That's one way to go about it. Mm. And that's, that's a fun way to go about it, but it almost still allows for this sort of detached God. Yeah. It, it, it seems almost hands off in a sense. Yeah. That everything that we perceive to be the interactions of God are these pre-timed mechanical interactions. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot of other solutions that we don't have time to go into because we're already over our normal limit. But, hey, there is, I just think there's there's something to be said about revisiting whether God is temporal or not. And I think the standard view of a lot of Christians and Muslims and Jews is that he's not. But maybe it's worth looking into who he is. Or at least revising our arguments for why he's not. And this is what a lot of contemporary religious metaphysics metaphysicians are doing. It's a cool discussion. One we might need to make another episode about. Perhaps. God in time. That'd be fun. Okay, well, you've given us your time, and we're so grateful for that. And yeah, hopefully you'll give us some more next week. Thanks for tuning in to the World of Religions. See you next time.